everybody and welcome to this episode of Leading the Rounds. We want to start off by giving a big congratulations to our book winner from last episode. Jenna DeBaja won a free copy of Dr. Steve Swenson's book, Mayo Clinic Strategies to Reduce Burnout, 12 Actions to Create an Ideal Workplace. Congratulations, Jenna. In addition to that, we're also going to do another book giveaway from this episode. We will be giving away a book from one of my favorite authors, Atul Gawande. We're going to give away his book, Being Mortal. This is a book that Peter and I both loved reading ourselves, and our guest for today's episode suggested it as a great book to learn about end-of-life care. Check out our social media pages for the details. In addition to that, if you like what we're doing here at Leading the Rounds, please subscribe and give us a positive rating. In this episode, we interviewed Dr. Ed Cregan. Dr. Ed was first board certified in medical oncology with a focus on malignant melanoma and lung cancer. He then transitioned into a career in hospice and palliative medicine. Dr. Ed was a Mayo Clinic president in 1999, 2000, and 2001. He was responsible only to the Mayo Clinic CEO who directly answered to the internal board of governors and external trustees. He believes this gave him fascinating insight into what he calls the masters of the universe. On a local as well as international platform, he was able to see the skill set of those leaders who were able to be effective in what they led and those who were not. Every effective leader he noted was an effective communicator. If you want to connect with Dr. Ed Cregan, you can find him at Edward Cregan on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. In this episode, we talk about bringing humanity back to medicine, his perspective as a hospice physician, and how he copes with the inevitability of death. Welcome to Leading the Rounds. Hey, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Leading the Rounds. Caleb, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Peter. Looking forward to this interview with Dr. Ed. Oh, me too. Dr. Ed, how are you doing today? Good. Very durable and resilient. Those are key features <laughs> uh, Love in to today's hear that. world. Yes. Definitely. So we wanted to start this interview with a brief introduction of your leadership background and how you got into hospice medicine and the impetus for writing your books. Hey, thank you. I was born in Newark, New Jersey, which is the home of uh, Whitney Houston, Queen Latifah, marvelous Marvin Hagler, former welterweight champion of the world, and me. And Newark was the springboard for me to understand I wanted to leave that environment. So I went to LaSalle College in Philadelphia, then went to New York Medical College, became a Wolverine at the University of Michigan, and many weeks and months were spent at Wayne County, which was a very challenging place to work. My leadership career started in the middle 1990s. The only clearly elected position at Mayo Clinic is the president of the voting staff. That position was a group of about 4,000 physicians and scientists. And my job was to represent them before the Board of Governors and also the Board of Trustees. 
Board of Governors are Mayo's intrinsic internal leadership. The trustees are CEOs of corporations. Quite frankly, I was offered the position for three consecutive years and I declined. I never view myself as a leader. This was not my tribe and I didn't want to do it. But coming from New Jersey, you become street smart and savvy. And I got the picture real clear that this was something I needed to do. Quite frankly, it was not something that I enjoyed. I was told I was very effective, but I was incredibly relieved when it was over. And the gift that that position gave me was real clear. It's very easy to sit at the end of the table. It's easy to sit on the sidelines or in the bleachers and criticize leadership. But when the buck stops with you and you're making decisions about which you never have enough information involving bazillions of dollars and the lives and families of your colleagues, it's a whole different ballgame. So I salute those who do it well. I learned a lot about leadership, but I knew that when my time was up, I was very grateful to move off into other arenas. So I won't hold you being a Wolverine against you because I'm actually a Spartan. So <laughs> I won't hold well, that against you. <laughs> um, I often tell audiences that um, the University of Michigan was the finest university that a football team could purchase. <laughs> and now with COVID and the changing of schedules, it, it's a whole different world. So you and your colleagues will never have the nimbleness and the flexibility that I've had because COVID has changed the calculus. So I wanted to ask you a question about your time as a leader you mentioned that you were happy to pass on that role and move yes. on to something else, but I'm sure you learned a lesson or two from it that helped prepare you for the things that you're doing now. What were some of the big things that you took from that brief time? It was a gift to see good leaders, and it was a gift to see those who did not belong at the head of the table. And I've often thought about the speakers who were effective leaders and those who are not. And the most significant factor in effective leadership is the ability to communicate. Every effective leader, every effective leader has been an effective speaker. And about 25 years ago, I became irate about speakers wasting my time death by PowerPoint, give me a break. I could get onto Google and see the management of blah, blah, blah. So I started to go to acting schools, public speaking schools, speech and drama coaches. And I learned that the good leaders were effective speakers. Secondly, good leaders had a total command of the topic and the subject. And I'm thinking one individual who came up through the ranks head of departments, head of focus groups, head of task forces. And he was unassailable simply because he had total command of facts and figures. Now, there was a movie called Jerry Maguire a couple of years ago. And the thesis was, show me the money. It was about an athlete who had an agent and the athlete didn't care about the nuances, show me the money. 
So in, in my view, it was courage and making a decision without having all the details. I think Jeff Bezos from Amazon made the comment, you must be willing to make a decision with 70% of the available information. If you wait until you get 80 or 90, your competition will eat your lunch. So the most significant factor in my view was a stage presence, the ability to work the room, to sell the Brooklyn Bridge and have total command of the facts and figures that are on the table. Having experienced and seen and had these two insights from your time in leadership, um, how did this transition into the things you did afterwards? I knew that I had a limited skill set. You know, the miracle on ice took place in February of 1980, probably the greatest single sporting achievement in the 20th century. And uh, the comment was made that, that the common man goes nowhere, that the common person goes nowhere. You have to be uncommon. So for each of you and your audience, you have to pick one thing and get really, really good at it. What I wanted to do was to focus my energy on areas where I felt committed to make the most good. Hospice, palliative care, end of life. So in 1996, it was like a lightning bolt that said, hey, you should become board certified in palliative medicine. And I'll never forget it. There was a, um, a one day examination at the University of Minnesota, which is about an uh, 100 miles north of Rochester, Minnesota. We're in the southeast part of the state. Glare ice, about 90 degrees below zero. You know, a little hyperbole, but it was cold. Uh, halfway up there, the car did a 360. And being a very bright, insightful person, I thought, okay, this is not going to turn out well. I can turn around and go home, or I could give it a shot. So I gave it a shot and I passed the exam and that opened up possibilities and options that I never ever considered. And my colleagues looked at me like I was from Pluto. Why would I, as a board certified oncologist, ever want to spend my time in the death and dying arena? And I didn't have to defend my position, but now end of life and hospice medicine is prime time. Every organization without exception to survive must have a hospice palliative care footprint. So for me, it has opened up unparalleled possibilities in caring for the terminal ill, but also having credibility to talk about stress, burnout, resiliency, and durability. Because as as you all know, and as your leadership knows, we have one of the highest burnout rates of any profession in captivity. You can get on Google. Uh, the burnout rate for you and your colleagues, about 50%. We have one of the highest suicide rates. We have about 400 healthcare professionals a year killing themselves. So when I speak about this, I have credibility, and all of that was driven by hospice medicine and palliative care. What are some of the like strongest metaphors or parallels that you've seen between 
palliative, in the palliative care sector and in these professional plagues that are kind of entrenched in the medical profession, burnout and uh, suicide and all these things that we were just talking about. Once upon a time, the care of the sick, whether it was a disease of the soul or disease of the heart or the liver, was a sacred fiduciary relationship. It was the caring of that patient and there was a healing presence in the power between the patient and the healthcare provider. And I'm speaking generically because many patients are cared for by non-physician healthcare providers. So that was a sacred relationship. And every baby boomer can relate some story of a caring Marcus Welby, Dr. Kildare, some family practice doc who took care of the family with marginal skills. Today, medicine has become a commodity. It's become uberized. It's become a product, it's become a service. And millennials defined as people between 24 or so and maybe 39 or 40, don't recognize the healing power of that relationship. They want that quick fix, they want that antibiotic, they want that COVID test, and the relationship becomes less important. So right away, the doc has become co-opted. He's selling a product. And when you look at what's happened with telemedicine, basically he's part of a contract because he's dealing with some individual whom maybe he's never met before. So the commodification of medicine is the first factor that's led to burnout. The second factor is that each of us are now working for international healthcare delivery conglomerates. And Mr. Pink published a series of books looking at professional satisfaction. One of them is autonomy which you will not have and which I certainly don't have. And the other is the opportunity of mastery, which we certainly don't have. I logged on a few weeks ago on a webinar on CME programs and the body of medical knowledge doubles every 76 days, 76 days. So by the time you graduate from medical school, much of your information will be obsolete and irrelevant. And in fact, your patients and their families will know more factual knowledge about their condition than we will. So this has driven the stress, the burnout and the suicide phenomenon. So we need to take care of ourselves. We need to be aware of the issues or we will not go the distance. I see one of the solutions, and you can read about it a lot in the literature now, of some of these problems is bringing humanity back to medicine. Yes. Can you talk for a minute about how your experience has led you to, I'm, I'm guessing, a similar conclusion dealing with those who are in their end-of-life situations and how we can help bring humanity back to medicine. The joy of medicine it's not the CAT scan, the dog scan, the MRI, or the ultrasound of, of the pineal gland, wherever that is. You know, I thought I was pretty funny until I met you guys, but I'm, I'm kind of giving you my best stuff here, but it's, it's, not, it's not coming across. I, I think you're quite funny, Dr. Craig. 
Thank you. Mr. Ed, sorry. <laughs> um, medicine has the ability to siphon off the gene for humor, especially big healthcare systems. Just walk into a cafeteria. There's no joy. People are not funny and funny stuff happens. But going back to humanity, you got to know where the patient lives. You must know what kind of work they do. And the key to the kingdom, ask them about their pets. Because no patient can talk about their pets without bringing out the cell phone and showing their pets. Now, let me give you a couple of examples. A few years ago, in our lung cancer clinic, I was asked to see a gentleman who was in his early 90s, and he was disheveled, he was unkempt, he had stage four non-small cell lung cancer. He looked like he was very ill. And scattered throughout the history was the term doctor, DR period. And I asked him about that. He said, well, I'm not a doctor, I'm a PhD. Okay, then I said to him, well, well, tell me, what was your doctorate in? And he said, son, called me son. He said, have you heard of Los Alamos? Have you heard of J. Robert Oppenheimer? Have you heard of the Manhattan Project? Have you heard of an airplane called the Enola Gay? This was the chief physicist architect of the atom bomb project, which transformed the world that we live in. Bam, all of a sudden, he was not simply an elderly disheveled patient, but he was a piece of history. So you ask patients what they do and it becomes magical. Now, Epic is part of your world. Yeah. You know, I defy you to quickly access Epic, username, password, blah, 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 and find out the patient's belief system find out the name of the pet and found out what they do for a living. It's there someplace. So how can you and I knock on the door of the exam room or the hospital and minister to that patient without knowing what they do? Incomprehensible. Mm -hmm. So that is the only solution to put the joy back in medicine. However, it's not cost effective, but it is effective in keeping our souls intact so we can continue on this sacred journey. And this is a sacred journey. This is like, not, not like making toasters. This is a, a, a sacred calling. But one of the phenomena that has happened at Mayo Clinic and at most major centers, and certainly in Big Blue, every leader, Every clinical leader had a clinical footprint. So if they were the chair of ophthalmology, they saw patients. If they were head of internal medicine, they had a clinical exposure, albeit limited, but it gave them a reality check of the messy, gritty business of modern medicine. But today, medicine has become so complicated that the C-suite people are off on a spaceship someplace and they sometimes don't recognize the needs of patients and families, the needs of the insurance people, our personal needs. And sometimes their recommendations don't acknowledge the personhood of us and the personhood 
of patients and families. I, I think you bring up a lot of really good points. Um, my favorite parts of medical school so far have been the ones where I've been able to interact with patients and, yes. and get to know them. They've been invaluable to me, not just from like a learning perspective, but also from an interpersonal perspective. And one thing that I've been wondering since reading about your background and a, what little patient interaction, interaction I've had in medical school so far is what is the difference between empathy and humanism? And because I, I feel like in order to feel the satisfaction that you're describing in a patient encounter, one needs to ma master one, if not both of these things. Peter, one has to ma master both. Mm -hmm. Empathy means the gift, the insight. And you notice my cat. Uh, <laughs> now we know what kind of pets you have. Yeah. <laughs> this cat could be the head of medicine at the University of Michigan. <laughs> but nobody, look at your smiles. Nobody can speak about their pet without a story. And if you remind me, we'll come back to uh, about some other stories about pets. But empathy is the gift to walk in the shoes of that patient. And someone once made the comment, unless we are sick in our life, we know nothing. Unless we've been touched by illness, by sadness, look at President-elect Biden. Talk about an empathetic individual where his wife and I believe a young daughter were killed in an automobile accident. His son survived the nightmare of war in the Middle East, comes back home, and I think the president-elect said he had a body fat of 7%, 7% tragically dies of a glioblastoma a year later. So the president-elect clearly has been inoculated with the virus of empathy. Humanism is the gift to recognize the patient as a person, not as a disease. And as people get burned out, they talk about the gallbladder in room 716. They talk about him, they talk about her. They don't acknowledge Mr. Smith and Mrs. Jones. I've been a visiting professor at some organizations and have been appalled that the consultant, the attending refers to an elderly patient whom he had never met by her first name. That's disrespectful, that's unthinkable. We have to dress the part. We have to look like we know what we're doing. So at Mayo Clinic, a suit at a minimum or a sport jacket and a tie is the expectation. Um, one elderly patient said he does not want to be cared for by a provider who wears Nikes or New Balance shoes. Now we can take this to the extreme, but I think this suit the jacket and the tie when appropriate is a very clear message. So without empathy, without humanism, we will not have a career in medicine spanning 40 years. It simply won't happen. Peter and I are interested in the topic of death and dying and the topic of palliative care. You talked about experiencing hurt and, and death in your own life, giving you a perspective on empathy. How has caring for patients through all these years given you a better perspective on life and on empathy and on 
um, pursuing the things that you or you are passionate about. It makes me realize dealing with death and dying, what really is important. Facetiously, I told my wife, Peggy, and she's my best friend and my wife, at my wake, she can hand out all my reprints and all my book chapters. At the bedside, I never hear patients talking about their achievements, never. And you never see a 403B statement or a stock option statement on the night table. But what I do hear about is regrets and remorse and missed opportunities. Every November at Mayo Clinic, there used to be a face-to-face, real-time meeting of the entire Mayo Clinic staff, about 2,000 individuals at a downtown convention center. And one of the highlights of the evening is to honor the retirees. And typically there'd be 30 retirees per year. These were geniuses who have transformed medicine as we now know it in the 21st century. Transformed medicine. And their acknowledgement before their peers was a five second applause. One slide, three bullets, five seconds. So at the end of the day, we all need to leave a legacy, a footprint, something that we will remember by. And it's not the achievement, but it's the door that we opened, the soul that we saved, that extra phone call that we made, that extra time that we spent with the patient. That's what makes the difference. And that's what sustains us, especially now with administrative bureaucracy and with COVID, which is siphoning the spirit of the organization. And as of today, about 1,800 healthcare providers have died from COVID providing comforting care to patients during some dark hours. I wanted to ask, um, because one thing that we, both Caleb and I feel is very important for young leaders to identify is their purpose. These are themes that people like Simon Sinek brings up and Stephen Covey brings up. Yes, yes. How do you think your perspective on, on identifying purpose has changed since becoming a palliative care doctor? I'm thinking back to your story about when you almost spun out in your car and you had that moment of, of, of hesitation and thought of like, maybe this is not for me. Do you, how do you think going through with that has impacted the way that you think about purpose then and then now after a career in palliative care? After coming up through the ranks of internal medicine oncology, the focus is on publications and presentations. That's riveted into our DNA, giving a presentation at a national meeting, writing a paper, that perhaps your mother-in-law might read, but nevertheless, there's that visibility so that you're not part of the faceless herd. And I was on that conveyor belt just like everybody else. And then I saw the suffering that some clinical trials were impaling on patients, nausea, vomiting, there was no concept through the late 90s about end of life, 
about symptom control. So that's when I flipped the switch to go into hospice and palliative medicine. But I, I will be very honest, this is not for everybody. It's labor intensive. And if one is not grounded and focused, uh, this can erode the soul and one can go down a, uh, a, an existential rabbit hole. So I think what I've learned is not to sweat the small stuff, try to do something meaningful and positive for one person each day, especially if they don't know that you did it. The culture at Mayo Clinic is unique. And one dimension of the culture is to open a door for someone else. If I have a PowerPoint, if I have a project and it can help either one of you, take it. When I give a presentation, I always include my email address and I invite the audience to ask me for my PowerPoint. So those are the kinds of things that I find nurturing and supportive rather than writing another paper about the management of, of X, Y, and Z. Because all that stuff, it's on Google, it's on YouTube, nothing new. But what is new is sitting across the table from someone and helping them make that final journey with peace and dignity. Something you mentioned a moment ago was that palliative care is not for everyone and it can lead people down possibly an existential crisis. And that was something that Peter and I talked about for a minute when we were preparing for this interview was, you know, we could imagine that caring for uh, those who are in their end of life could make you feel some anxiety about your own mortality and have you thinking about existential questions about your own mortality. So how have you been able to deal with that yourself as someone who cares with these, cares for these patients day in and day out? It provides me the opportunity to reflect on my own mortality. And it provides me an opportunity to spell out very clearly what I would want for myself if I was in that same situation. It's very difficult to do that. Many dying patients would say to me, okay, Dr. Ed, what would you do if you were in my circumstance? And I shared with them that's not a fair question because of my insight and judgment, but I know right now, and I'd be very clear about this, if I had certain conditions, I would never put my family through the torment of my going down multiple clinical trials, multiple investigational programs, multiple surgeries with virtually no chance of helping, multiple visits around the country to see the land of the Spartans, the land of the Wolverines for some magical treatment, knowing that the probability of these things working is like me winning the Nobel Prize. So I become astounded when I look at patients grasping for a straw, eroding their quality of lives, spending half of their remaining life in airports flying off to see some guru and any meaningful treatment is on a browser someplace. So the gift that I've been given is to make a covenant with my wife and my family through our advanced directives. This is what I do not want if I'm faced with one of these situations. In your book, uh, you, you say that you write this for uh, patients and their families to come to terms with the idea of death and dying. 
Yes. But what, what unique perspective have you been given being at the bedside as a practitioner that you could pass on to medical students that they may not otherwise get? Like what is a lesson that you don't think a student could get unless they're in the position that you're in? There's one lesson, one question to ask the patient, which nobody asks them. Do you want to know what the question is? The, yes. question, yep. <laughs> the question is, what, Caleb, what are you most concerned about as a patient? What keeps you up at night? What are you worried about? Because the, the entourage comes to the bedside, Professor X, Y, and Z, with all these minions following him, and nobody ever says, what are you most concerned about? They'll say, what about your pain? How about your bowels? Blah, blah, blah. But rarely do they sit across mano a mano and say, Mrs. Jones, what are you most concerned about? And unless we answer that question, we can never meet the needs and heal the soul of that patient because we may have no concept of what is eroding the soul of that patient. It might be to be reunited with the, the prodigal son, maybe to be kept alive until their daughter comes home from some dangerous part of the world. Maybe it's to pick up the phone and talk to some business partner that was cheated out of some financial situation. So that's the key to the key. What are you concerned about? Once we know that, we can better accommodate the patient's wishes. Something that I'm interested in as far as your career goes is how you've been able to integrate your clinical practice, both being um, boarded in palliative care and, and oncology, but then also your creative interests as far as writing and speaking and doing other things. How have you been able to manage those two and connect those ideas? The number one gift that I have is the gift of fitness. If we are not dead fit, to use a racetrack term, we ain't going to go the distance in the current world. Um, and I've been very blessed. My wife and I have 26 marathons between us. We may well be the fastest marathon couple in our age group. And I say our age group because most of my competition is either dead, demented, or in a nursing home. So I have the stamina to stand on the stage in the sands at Las Vegas with 50,000 people staring at me, and I got them. Because I have a gift to share with them that nobody else has the stamina and the focus to pull this off. I give many depositions involving some legal issues. I walk into the room and I know I'm the fittest, best looking, smartest, best prepared character. I'm the bad guy on the planet. I'm the bad sheriff. And I know that these attorneys in general are not fit. They have trouble getting out of the chair. So without becoming too colorful, that gives me an enormous <laughs> advantage. And everyone, every one of our listeners better have at a minimum, here it comes, seven hours of restorative sleep, or you will have the IQ of a zucchini. <laughs> <laughs> See, in the Midwest, everybody knows what a zucchini is. In New Jersey, they, they're not quite so sure who that is. 
So it's, it's the fitness that opens up unbelievable doors. So my wife and I uh, run almost every day. This morning, we put in eight miles. It was about maybe 15 degrees. So that opens up a creative reservoir. So I come in and with a microphone, I will dictate about 3000 words, blogs, book columns, chapters, tweets, that sort of thing. But if you're not fit, if you're a sedentary carnivorous individual, you don't have that energy and that insight to get this stuff done. So the reason I was, you know, when you brought this up initially laughing and, and I appreciate you bring this, bring this up is Peter and I were talking right before you came on actually about the same topic. Um, Peter and I were actually mentioning superhumans and I told Peter, that I believed it was people who did CrossFit, ran marathons, triathletes, things of that nature, that were superhumans with with superhuman immune systems. And we were talking about it in relation to the COVID-19 pandemic. And so I I appreciate you bringing that up. I mean, there is no question, (laughs) if you have your immune system in overdrive, following a plant-based diet, which my wife and I have followed for 30 years, One advantage of that is that you have no friends. No one invites you over for dinner. (laughs) They want to know what, what, do you have some tofu for Thanksgiving? Um, And when my colleagues criticize me, I say, okay, let's get an iPad. One-on-one, any distance, any (laughs) time, bam, I, I have no takers. But it's the fitness that provides the stamina. So we are up at four o'clock every morning. We are in bed at nine o'clock. In fact, I have my pajamas on right now. So when we're <laughs> finished, I can take a nap. Uh, we are fanatical about what we eat and what we do. Um, although it's difficult, we try to keep stress within a reasonable perspective because our world is designed to kill us. Primarily the gimmicks, the gadgets, the cell phones. If, if, if you are interrupted, you're doing something, it'll take you 25 minutes to get back to where you were. So if every time there's a beep, a buzz, a vibration, and you answer it, you're doomed. Nothing will get done. So this is the kind of stuff that has given me an enormous advantage. So if every time the beeper goes off, you pick up the telephone, absolutely nothing will get done. This is actually one of the points that um one of my favorite books ever is Deep Work by Cal Newport. Yeah. Oh, yes, yes. Deep Work. Of course. Yes, it's, yes. You know, oh, so you know, it's a great oh, book. Oh, absolutely. Yes, yes. Um, yeah. And I think I think the one thing that people miss is that when you are like on your phone, and, and I feel this too, I sometimes get sucked into it and I hate it. I hate it about myself. But you don't leave satisfied with that specific thing that you were doing. Whereas when I, when I find myself engaged in like two or three hours of deep work, I leave feeling like I got something done and I feel really good about myself. Absolutely. And I have an internal sense of satisfaction. Yes. But, so what I've learned, I sit down in the morning and I put this thing on for three hours, three hours. I don't care if the Pope is in my garage. I don't <laughs> care if Gandhi is coming up the driveway. He ain't going to get my attention. When the... Alarm goes off at three hours, I turn this thing off and then do what I have to do. Uh, I will never answer the telephone unless it's for the Academy Award, you know, or or something like that. But if uh, we will be whipsawed by this stuff, the maximum concentration, and Newport talks about this, 90 minutes, that's all. 
So to think you're going to write the American novel over four hours, it's, it's not going to happen. And there's that hour of power when all the stars are aligned, we connect the knots and bam, showtime. So I will not compromise that for some trivial thing on Facebook or Instagram. So Peter and I like to close our interviews with questions about books. And I can't help but notice your bookshelf right behind you. Yes. And so we wanted to know a couple different categories. Obviously, you're involved in palliative care and end of life. So you've written a book called Farewell that our listeners can check out. We want to ask you, what are some other books on end of life questions that you would suggest? And then after that, some books for medical leaders or young leaders. Any book written by Ira Byock is worth one's time and energy, B-Y-O-C-K. He was a family practice doc, an ER doc from Montana, became enlightened, and now is a palliative medicine leader in Torrance, California. So anything written by Byock. Anything written by Atul Gawande from the Harvard system is well worth one's efforts. And these give a humanistic view. Breath Not Air is written by a neurosurgeon who obviously had non-small cell lung cancer. The most common rubric on Google is the rubric of leadership. So there is no one book. However, you cannot tease out leadership from stress and burnout. And you mentioned Dr. Steve Swenson. Anything written by him is gold. And also Dr. Tate Shanafelt, S-H-A-N-A-F-E-L-T. And anything written by Dr. Colin, C-O-L-I-N West, is is clearly uh, an important thing to read because you cannot separate the stress of leadership from the stress the stress of uh, burnout. I think those are some great suggestions. As far as the end of life books, you mentioned Atul Gwande. He's my favorite author for medical reading. And then yeah. also When Breath Becomes Air. Of course, yes. Yep, When Breath Becomes Air. I read it for the second time a couple months ago and thought it was just as good, if not better, the second time I read it. So that's a phenomenal book. Now, if, if, if Dr. Gwande was on this program with us, I would have to ask him a question. I have read his credentials and I'm laughing because how can any one human being on this planet be a professor of whatever, (laughs) a surgeon of every ailment known to human, a columnist for some magazine with the New York Times or one of those kinds of things, have a family life, see patients, And my question to him is, something has to give. We have so much karma. We have so much energy. How is it divided up without imploding? Now, there are unique individuals. Obviously, he's one of them. But this runs counter to my personal philosophy to get really good at one thing. Steve Martin, the uh, comedian, has a book, Be so good, they can't ignore you. Get so good that you have a skill set that no one else dare touches. And you can become a Jedi Knight, a master of the universe. 
I would say that from your philosophy also, he must be really fit to be able to do all of those things <laughs> as well. <laughs> um, I suspect so. Um, but he has to sleep. He has to eat. Here he is um, in the Harvard system. It's a fairly, fairly good system. Not as good as our system here in Rochester, Minnesota. <laughs> but it's not... You know, in terms of community colleges, it's not that bad. It'll be a stepping stone for some place. But I, I just remain intrigued by those individuals who can somehow pull this off day after day after day. Well, if we ever can get him on here, first of all, I think we both Caleb and I would be incredibly surprised and excited but we'll definitely ask him that question for you yeah see i'm what's called a mercy booking so you can't get somebody who's famous and funny so <laughs> let, let's get this guy from siberia and let's <laughs> and, and let's see what yeah. what he is like uh, oh, no. and, and and there also is there's a humor in life you know funny things happen and when the humor is uh, about us it's okay when it's about some person then uh, th then it's not not okay. Well, well, Dr. Ed, I don't think you're anything close to a mercy booking. You came, <laughs> you came very uh, highly recommended from your good friend, Dr. Swenson, who we yes. interviewed last. It was thank also you. a pleasure. Um, and with that, thank you very much for your time. And thank you for coming on our show and sharing okay. your insights. You guys, you. Are the, you guys are the best in show. Don't forget me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Leading the Rounds. We hope you learned something new or got a thought you can reflect on to further your own leadership development. If you like our content, please subscribe and follow. We work to put out a new episode every other week. You can also connect with us on social media on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Leading the Rounds or email us at leadingtherounds at gmail.com. See you next time on Leading the Rounds.